Well, Lord, that is our declaration today with our faith and everything that is within us. And, and Lord, we also acknowledge fully that we don't do this on our own, that we, we were promised a helper, Jesus said. The Spirit will come and He will lead you and He will renew you and He will baptize you and He will re-baptize you. He will fill you and fill you and fill you. So come, Spirit of God. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us again today. Refresh us again today. Infuse us, Lord, with heaven's strength, with heaven's perseverance, with heaven's commitment, with heaven's holiness, with heaven's faith, with heaven's love, with heaven's wisdom. Come, Spirit of God, as we worship you today, as we sit under your word today, as we fellowship together today. Refill us, Spirit of God. Refill us today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's so much easier to preach when you're in the presence of God. It's so important that we take that time at the beginning of a service just to lock in with him and just get into that place where we're in communion with him. Just awesome. Worship team, thank you. All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 today. That's page 965 if you're using the Bible on the pew in front of you, Matthew chapter 1. We started a series last week uh, called Scripture, Gender, and Sexuality. We're going to be in it for the next little while, exploring uh, different topics related to that. Most importantly, looking to the Word and telling us what does the Word of God say as we explore these different things. When I told a pastor friend of mine that I was going to be doing this series, he said, well, good luck with that. Have fun. And uh, I, I was just kind of kicking around the idea, and I said, how would you think that would go if, we, if you did something like that in your church? And he said, well, I'm not really sure. He said, it'll all just depend on how cool your church is talking about stuff like that. And so Monday morning came last week. We preached the first message last week. Monday morning came, and he messaged me. He said, well, was your church cool? And I was able to write back, yeah, my church is cool. <laughs> You guys were cool about it all. Thank you. And uh, I, I know nothing last week probably was that controversial. Some of the topics we're going to tackle as we go through are going to be a bit tougher. Uh, at the same time, it was great just to know that this is a place where we can talk about these things. And one of the reasons we're doing this series was from a, a feeling like we as a church don't really talk about these things enough. And uh, as our culture talks about these things a lot, the church has fallen woefully behind in just even just talking about, well, what does the Bible say about these things? things. And a lot of times when the church does talk about these things, it's some guy screaming on a news program about something. And so we are looking at what is a loving and gracious and Christ-like yet fully grounded in scripture way that we can have this conversation and talk about different issues related to gender, related to sex, related to marriage, related to sexuality, uh, all those kinds of things. As we said last week, uh, one of the things we want to do in this series is for you parents is give you tools so that you can talk to your kids. And, uh, and the understanding that, you know, as I have been a pastor for a little while, uh, so many Christian kids never got a sex talk, never had conversations about these things. And I totally get that it's uncomfortable, for sure. Uh, But the number of people, even last week, who came up and said, yeah, I never got a sex talk. Like, I I sort of figured it out on my own. Uh, You know, we don't do our kids any favors because, as we said last week, your kids will get a sex talk whether you give it to them or not. And it's not a very fun or pleasant thing. Of course, it's awkward and uncomfortable. But listen, last week, I gave a sex talk to the whole church. (laughs) So get over it. You love your kids. I gave a sex talk to the whole church. And I don't even like some of you that much. So (laughs) we... 
It's something we got to do. It's something we have to do. Our kids that we love, we need to protect them. We need to, to share God's word. And the culture is talking to us a lot about these issues. And I don't think we need to match the culture and the volume, but I think a little scripture goes a long way, and especially when it comes from mom and dad. So uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. Last week, what we did was uh, we went back to the Garden of Eden And we just talked about what is God's ideal for sex? What does that look like? And we'll recap that quickly uh, in a few minutes. But I told you last week I felt like Nick Willenda a little bit, crossing Niagara Falls on the tightrope uh, doing a series like this. Because one of the reasons that is the case is that we hold up God's ideal and we say this is what God wants for sex. And this is is pretty clear in Scripture. And anything outside of that, uh, Scripture calls sexual immorality. And so there's a standard that God has set, and we are called to it. And yet I know in this room, as in any church, is that there are many of us who have fallen short of that. We we didn't live up to that ideal. And I want to talk about that side of it today, uh, for those of us who are in that boat. And, And some of us, we did. We waited to marriage, and we have never done anything outside of marriage, and we have lived God's way. Uh, and so I want to talk about the other side of that for those of us who haven't, because there are many in this room who have sexual sin in their past. And I want to share some of my story and Sarah's story, and I wanted to tell you today that if you have sexual sin in your past, I am one of you. And I was not saved until I was 18, and I didn't know Jesus at all until that point. He was not in any way a part of my life. And so I came to Jesus at 18, uh, just had a powerful encounter with him. My life turned around instantly. But before I was 18, I was a teenager, and I was a teenager who didn't know him. Uh, part of that was having a girlfriend who I, I was not married to, obviously, and it was a sexual relationship. And I came to Jesus, and as I came to Jesus, we left that behind, and from there on, I did it God's way uh, and lived his way until I got married. Uh, Sarah also has a similar story. She came to Jesus at 20, and she also, as a teenager, got into some things that she, she shouldn't, including a boyfriend. And when she came to Jesus, she left behind the partying and left behind that. And, uh, and she and I were pure together until our wedding night. Uh, but if you have that in your history, I'm, I'm with you. And I know what that feels like, and I know what forgiveness feels like, and I know what purity feels like. Uh, and I can tell you from experience that purity is better. God's way is better. And I, I live with that. The difficulty with sexual sin is uh, it's not like gossip where you can kind of, you know, leave that behind. Like I, I gave away my virginity and I can't get that back now. I gave that to someone who wasn't my wife. Uh, and that's, that's just over. There's no way that that can change. And it is one of the great regrets of my life. It's one of the, you know, when I finally met the one that I fell head over heels in love with. And, and Sarah, I mean, I, I told you a bit of our story. I met Sarah, asked her out, you know, almost instantly after our first conversation, proposed to her seven weeks later. Like, I knew. That's my lady. Like, I, I knew. And we were married a few months after that. Uh, to meet the one that I was head over heels for, to meet the one and to hear the Lord say, this is the one I have for you, and to feel a love like you've never felt before, and I know many in this room have that, have felt that. Uh, and then to not be able to share the, the purity of the gift that God meant for us. To, to have to have that conversation and say, I didn't wait. Before I knew Jesus, I, I fell in this area. 
And in some senses, we were well-suited for each other, obviously. Before I met Sarah, I had dated a girl very briefly, and as the relationship started to get more serious, I thought, well, she should know this. She's a, a good Christian girl. She's walked with Jesus her whole life. And so I sat with her and said, just so you know, this is starting to get more serious, that I, I'm not a virgin. And I, I have done it God's way from the moment I met Jesus. I left that behind, but just so you know. Uh, and she said, ah, that was the end of the relationship. She said, I've been waiting, and I want to marry a guy who waited. And, you know, I would have liked to have a bit more grace probably in that situation, situation but I, I get it. I understand. Sarah had a very similar situation. She came to Jesus, and she, after a little bit, began to date a guy. And when she told him about her past, he dumped her right away as well and just said, I, I'm waiting, and I have been waiting for someone who has also been waiting. And it didn't matter that that had happened before Jesus to these people. It was just something that was important, and I get it. And so we were well-suited for each other, Sarah and I, having come out of those things because we had both fallen in the same area. There could be no judgment. And, and yet, you know, the reason God says don't do certain things is because he knows those things hurt us. That's the only reason God says don't do certain things. It's to protect us. Like a loving parent who says, stay out of the medicine cabinet, don't play in the street. Don't go there because this will do damage. And so though, even though I, I came out of that sin and I got saved and I left it behind and I was right with God and I knew I was forgiven and I believed that wholeheartedly, there were still consequences to my actions. I saw it in that girl I dated before Sarah. Sarah had consequences to her actions. And even though we were, again, well-suited for each other because we, we had both been through that and we had both experienced God's forgiveness and we could both forgive each other, we still brought baggage from those relationships into our relationship. And there were still issues that came up. Even though we knew we'd been forgiven, even though we had both fallen in the same way, there were still issues that came up of jealousy and different things. Like the, there are consequences to our sin. And that's why God says don't do those things. And by the grace of God, we worked through it. And by the grace of God, we have overcome. By the grace of God, we have a happy marriage. And, and it's healthy and we're doing well. But I can tell you from experience what sexual sin has felt like. I can also tell you from experience what purity feels like as we embrace God's way. Um, and today I want to talk to those of us who have fallen short in this area and what Scripture has to say about that. So, let's look at our text. We are in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Bijah, Bijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
after the exile to Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Shealtel, Shealtel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azar, Azar the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All right. Now, I know what you're thinking. Nothing says a good sex talk like a long and boring genealogy of Jesus' ancestors. But there are gems in that list that we are going to pull out today. Uh, very unusual in a, in a genealogy like that at the time that it was written, a, a sort of Greco-Roman biography. It was common to write a list of the ancestors, uh, but typically just the men. You would never include women's names in that. It would typically just be the men because the men carried the family name. Uh, just like today, our last names, typically the man carries the family name and the woman marries into that. And so you would just name the men. And so to say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that makes sense. And yet, throughout this genealogy, there are, there are five women named, including Mary. But earlier in the list, there are four women uh, of the main ancestors. Mary was a special case, obviously, because she uh, was the Virgin Mary and, and Jesus spoke to her, or the angel spoke to her about Jesus to come. But there's Judah and Tamar, there's Salmon and Rahab, there's Boaz and Ruth, and there's David and Bathsheba. And I was just looking over this list a few weeks ago as I was just doing my devotional reading and working my way through Matthew, and just saw in this list, like, there's, there's a lot in that whole list. There's a lot of shady characters in that. I preached on this uh, a couple Christmases ago here. Uh, there's idol worshipers and murderers and, and, and lots of different uh, not-so-nice guys in that list, but... With Judah and Tamar, with Salmon and Rahab, with Boaz and Ruth, with David and Beersheba, uh, there's four women listed, and those are four cases. Each of those four cases is a case of sexual sin in one way or another. And it's not that the woman caused the sin, but the, the woman is listed with the man because when it comes to sexual sin, often, just like the tango, it takes two. And so the man is listed and the woman is listed. And there are four stories in Scripture. Uh, I mean, there's many more, but in this genealogy, there are these four stories of sexual sin there with, uh, with these men and these women. And I'm just going to, you can read them on your own because uh, they're a bit long. But in Genesis 38, the story of, story of Judah and Tamar, it's a bonkers story. Judah and Tamar are actually father-in-law and daughter-in-law. And a long story short, Judah uh, is trying to push Tamar out of the family. He's trying to not uh, do right by her and trying to push her out of the family so that she's on her own. And as a way to lock herself into the family, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and waits uh, just outside the city. And one day when Judah's walking by, she seduces him uh, and ends up getting pregnant. So she knew she was seducing her father-in-law. He didn't know that he was, she was her sister-in-law, but he did think she was a prostitute. He was married. Uh, and so out of this, you know, very strange relationship, uh, twins are born. And one of those twins would be the great, 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 etc. grandfather uh, of the family that Jesus was going to be born into. Salmon and Rahab. Rahab was the woman when Israel came to the promised land and came to, uh, they sent spies in to go and see. Before we go into the promised land, go check it out for us. And Rahab was the woman who found the spies and welcomed them and, and hid them so that they could do their job. And scripture tells us that Rahab was a prostitute. 
And she was also a foreigner, and, and Israel was not to marry foreigners. And yet, uh, in Rahab's story, she, even though she was a prostitute and had this sinful past, uh, she took care of God's spies, and afterwards, when Israel came into the land, she was welcomed into God's family, and she married an Israelite. And they had a son, and that son would be a great, 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 etc. grandfather of the family that Jesus would be born into. Ruth and Boaz isn't quite sinful in the same way. Uh, they, they waited for marriage, as far as we can tell. They, they were committed to each other. It was a loving relationship. But where this one is sketchy is that Ruth was from a country called Moab, and God's law specifically said, do not marry women from Moab. They worship false gods. They will lure you away from the Lord. Uh, and so there was, it was specifically laid out in God's word that this was not someone you were to marry and, and sleep with and procreate with. And yet Ruth and Boaz have this loving, incredible relationship uh, that is held up in Scripture as an example uh, of what love can look like. David and Bathsheba, uh, you might be more familiar with, where David is a king. He's married. Bathsheba is a woman married to somebody else. David sees her one day. She's having a bath, and he, he sees her from his palace. He uh, is smitten by her. He brings her to the palace. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. In order to cover up the pregnancy, David has her husband killed and marries her quickly, uh, trying to kind of cover it up. The consequences that would fall on them for their sin were massive, and you can go read the story uh, of all the consequences that their adultery brought upon them. But, uh, but that story is held up with David, who is the, other than Jesus, is the king in, in Scripture. Uh, Jesus is the king of kings, but in terms of just your normal human kings, David is the guy, and Israel today still reveres him as their greatest leader and their greatest king. Uh, the consequences were huge for their sin. When we were in Sudbury, a woman came into my office one day, and, and she had fallen sexually. She had stumbled in this area. And she just sobbed sitting on the couch in my office saying, will God ever forgive me? Could God ever forgive me for what I've done? And how do I get past this? Like, how, do I, how do I move on? We're going to come back to that question before we finish today. One of the things we talked about last week was God's ideal. What has God laid out for us in Scripture? And so we said... When we want to know how God wanted us to function perfectly, we go back to the garden. Back to the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. Uh, we're going to come back to this as a bit of a theme throughout this series. When we want to know how we were created to function, we go back to the garden. And we say, before sin entered the world, there was a period where there was Adam and Eve. There's a period where there was humanity, but no sin yet. And that is the way God set this up before we chose to go our own way. So if we want to know how we were created to function, we go back to the garden. Or we can also look at passages like the end of Revelation. Uh, Isaiah and different places talk about the end of time when sin has been defeated. What's that world going to look like? When we were trying to figure out what's the ideal, how has God made us to be? Those are the types of passages that we look to. And so we go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And Scripture says Adam is there. He is a being. He is alone. And the Lord looks at him and says, this isn't good uh, for a man to be by himself. And so he creates Eve and puts them together. Uh, it's the first human relationship. It is a marriage relationship. It is a sexual relationship. And God lays down this standard from the very beginning. He says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother, leaves his family of origin, and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And that's the picture that God gives us for both marriage and sex right from the beginning. 
when there's only one man and one woman in the world, he says, this is what marriage looks like. It's a new family that breaks off of an old family, and two become one. Two separate people bond together as one. And it says that they're united, a man is united to his wife. Not girlfriend, not fiance, not anything but his wife. And so we would say that's the standard God put in place from the beginning. That we're united to a spouse and they two become one. They become one flesh. Through the sex act, two different people bond together in a way that is like nothing else. That's deeper than friendship. That's deeper than any other relationship. Two become one. Two separate people join together and become one. We talked about the analogy last week that sex is like glue. It takes things that are separate and it bonds them together. Sex is a bonding action. It is a bonding agent. And within marriage, this is a very good thing. Because in marriage, two need to be one. There needs to be unity. There needs to be oneness. And in the sexual act, two bodies join together. It's as closely intimate as you can possibly be with another human being. So physically, they have become one. And we know emotionally there is a joining together. And spiritually, there is a joining together. And so sex glues us to another person. And in marriage, that is a very good thing. Uh, In marriage, the reason why God tells us to wait until marriage is because in marriage, we make a vow We make a commitment where we say, I'm not going anywhere. I am with you till death. I am not going to bail on you. And because I am making that commitment, this is now a safe place for two to become one. This is now a safe place to open up our bodies, to open up our hearts, to open up our spirits, to join together. It's safe because we've made a commitment that we're not going anywhere. Glue is an amazing thing in the place of that commitment. When, when that commitment has been made, uh, the glue of the sex act is crucial. Where it becomes damaging, and this is, has been my personal experience, where it becomes damaging is when you have glued yourself to someone else. And when that relationship ends, two have become one that now have to rip apart into two again. Even if it was casual, two have become one, and there's a, a tearing that happens. And sometimes people come to me and they say, I'm still longing for my lover from 25 years ago before I met my spouse. I'm still thinking about that person. You go, right, because two have become one. You've, we're one with that person, and that doesn't always rip apart so easily, even if the relationship ends. The connection is still there. So today we're talking about redeeming sex for those of us who have fallen and, uh, and hopefully a, a bit of a warning for those of you who haven't fallen but learn from my mistake and the mistake of others that, that you will stay pure and you will do this God's way. Um, when Paul's talking about sex, one of the things he, he also talks to us about as followers of Jesus is that uh, we are not just uh, our own. We are belonging to Jesus now. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. We are united with Christ. He has made his home in us. First Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that one who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one. And Paul here uses the most casual of all casual sexual relationships. Even a a casual hookup in a bar would presume that there's some mutual attraction or interest. In, In the case of a prostitute, there's nothing mutual at all. The one partner would never do it in a million years except that there's cash on the table. So it's taken the sex act and it's made it a business transaction. Uh, And Paul also uses that as an example uh, of just now that you're one with Christ, now that Christ has made his home, it's, it's different. Your body is not just yours anymore. Your body belongs to Jesus. He's made his home 
in you. And Jesus, we should not take Jesus and make him one with a prostitute in that intimate sexual way that God intended for marriage. And we can tease that out a bit as a principle, uh, not just with prostitution, but with, with the girlfriend or the boyfriend, with the fiancé, with whatever. That, that there is a call to God, uh, from God to, to purity in this area, and we were only meant to be glued to one person in his plan. And we should not look to be glued to others. And, and again, uh, we wait for that, that commitment. I had a friend who was a Christian who began sleeping with his fiance uh, under the justification of, we're going to be doing it anyway, right? We're on our way to that, and we love each other, and we know this is right. And so we're, we're just expressing our love this way a little bit early, but that's okay because we've already made the commitment of love to one another with that ring on her finger, I have another friend who won't get married. He's not a Christian. We went to high school together, and he's been living with his girlfriend for about 12 years. And they have a house together. They have kids together. They have a uh, you know, joint checking account, and, and in every way are, are pretty much married. And so every once in a while, we're talking, and I'll kind of needle him a little bit and say, come on, man. Like, what are you doing? Why don't you just marry her? Take that step. You're, you're already there. And he's like, oh, we don't need a piece of paper to get married. Like, we're in love, and we know what our love is, and we don't need that piece of paper to get married. And in some ways, I guess I kind of understand where he's coming from. And he would say, well, you know, we're committed to each other. And I would say, well, right, except for the commitment, except for the actual commitment, right? Because, of course, we dishonor marriage when we say it's just a piece of paper, right? When I get a mortgage at the bank, that's also just a piece of paper, but there's a lot behind it, especially if I decide to stop paying, right? A piece of paper can mean a lot. And so, I mean, it's silly to say that marriage is a piece of paper. Marriage is a vow that we make. That piece of paper represents an actual binding commitment that we've made before God and before the state where we said we're, we're not going anywhere. Uh, we're committed here for life. And so God has called us to this place of, of purity in marriage and said, by all means, glue sex is not a bad thing. It's an important thing within marriage. We'll get a bit into that next week. Uh, but you were meant to be glued to one person. And that one person is meant to be within the safety of the marriage commitment that we make. And anything outside of that, biblically, we would say, falls under this broad category called sexual immorality. Just anything outside of God's perfect plan for sex. And when it comes to sexual immorality, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, Flee! Run! There's other parts in the New Testament that talk about, you know, take a stand, right? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Take a stand against the devil and his evil schemes and, and fight back. And there's this picture of, of, you know, of resistance and standing firm. And when it comes to sexual immorality, it's like, no, no, none of that. Don't be a hero. Just bail. Just don't mess around with temptation. And I, I've walked with lots of people through affairs over the years. And no one ever wakes up one morning and says, I think I'll have an affair today. Starts with a little flirtation with someone. Right? Starts with a, a lighthearted, doesn't mean anything kind of connection like that. And then it evolves maybe a bit of a deeper emotional back and forth. And it can snowball and snowball till eventually it becomes physical. No two teenagers typically would say, well, we're going to jump right into a sex relationship right away. Uh, but it starts with kissing. And then the boundary starts to get pushed a little further and gets pushed a little further until eventually it, it can cross the line. Uh, temptation gets in so subtly and so easily in this area that Paul's commandment is just flee. Just don't even get close to it. Just, just bail. Don't mess around 
men who struggle with porn, it often just starts off as I'm on the internet late at night and I'm just kind of putzing around and I kind of wander somewhere that I should. Just no, just bail. Just run away. This is an area where no one should try and be a hero. This is an area that it's just way too easy to get caught up. Other places say stay firm. Other places say take a stand. When it comes to sexual immorality, just don't, just run. There's a great story in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 7, it says that in this neighborhood there was a house, and in that house there was a married woman uh, of a certain reputation that when her husband was gone, uh, she would invite men into her house. The story doesn't blame the woman at all. It blames the men uh, who crossed the line with her. But the story says there's this house, and there's this woman who lives there, and, and people knew this about her, I guess. And the author says, I saw a young man one night kind of just moseying past her house, and she saw him and came out and invited him in, and he went. And again, Scripture doesn't blame her. blames the young man. And the author says, like, young, like, what were you doing, man? Like, what are you doing hanging around near that house? What are you doing at nighttime? You know, nighttime's when bad stuff happens. Like, what are you doing in the darkness, hanging around the house that you know, like, it's like you were asking for it. You were, you know, just maybe I can get close without actually crossing the line. Maybe I can, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, don't, just don't mess around with it. Stay off the street at nighttime. Don't be near the place. Don't get close to temptation. Flee, as the Apostle Paul says. Why are you even getting close to it? One of the ways we redeem sex, if we've fallen in this area, is, is the understanding that we talked about last week, that we come back to this idea that sex is gift. Not gross, not God, as we talked about last week, but sex is it's a gift from God. And in marriage, it's a crucial gift. It's a crucial sign of the health of the marriage. It's a crucial action that brings the husband and wife together. Like, it's crucial. And again, we'll go deeper into that next week. But understanding that sex is a gift, and like a gift, a gift awaits an appointed time to be opened. My birthday's in November. So if you give me a birthday gift today, I'm not going to open it today. It's, it's too early. Right? We don't open our Christmas gifts in April. It's too early. The gift awaits an appointed time. And once the appointed time has come, the gift is yours, and it is yours to be enjoyed, and it is an amazing thing, but it waits. The gift waits, and this gift of God waits. And so we redeem sex by acknowledging that. And if you maybe even right now are falling short in this area, I'll just call you back to God's word. I'll call you back to the garden. I'll call you back to this idea of gift. Call you back to God's way. Uh, that says this is a gift from God, but there's a, a date on it. The date is your wedding day. There's a date for this gift to be opened. And there's very good reasons that God has done that for us. We're just about done. Uh, Jeff, come on up. We're just going to close in just a sec. Remember last week we talked about uh, sort of through church history, some of the great theologians had said certain things about sex as they understood it at the time. And one had said, no Christian married couple should ever have sex. And a little bit later, someone said, well, we, we, we need to make babies. So, yeah, a married couple can have sex, but just for procreation. And Pope Gregory came along and famously said, well, you can have sex, but you can't enjoy it. Right? Sex isn't sinful for a married couple, but the pleasure is. So I don't even know how that works. But we understand sex as gift and, and everything that goes with that. Of, I mean, it is 
joy. It is pleasurable. It is intimate. It is oneness. And there is something in us as human beings for most of us. Some of us are called to singleness, but for many of us, there's a, a craving for that connection, for that intimacy. And it's fully understandable to want to do that even before you're married because there's something in us that wants that. And yet understanding sex as gift of God is understanding it's a gift that has a date on it. There's a timing to it that's important. There is a price that we pay, believe me. There is a price that we pay when we don't do it God's way. Even though we have been forgiven. Even though like the, the forgiveness of God can come and some of the natural consequences can still be there. Scripture says we will reap what we sow. And yet, to go back to that lady in my office in Sudbury, will God ever forgive me? Can I ever get past this? As to the first part, will God ever forgive me? Yes. 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 God forgives us. And we have a habit of elevating sexual sin above every other sin. But we all have sin. And God forgives us as we repent. But the key to the word repent is, repenting is acknowledging our sin and turning away from our sin. It's not just saying sorry. It's saying sorry with an effort towards doing it God's way, moving towards purity and holiness. So can God forgive me for what I did? For those of you in this room, premarital sex, or you've had an affair, whatever that has looked like for you, if you have struggled in this area or stumbled in this area, God can and will forgive. Absolutely. And let's also make sure we don't take that you would take this sermon the wrong way if you said, well, Chris was forgiven and he turned out okay and he's got a happy marriage, therefore I can keep doing what I'm doing because I know I'll be forgiven one day. That would be taking this the wrong way. The Apostle Paul wrote, shall we go on sinning now that we have been forgiven? By no means. The call is back to purity, back to holiness. We'll be forgiven our sins, but we're moving towards doing these things God's way. And in the stories that we told you about before, uh, you know, Judah and Tamar, Salmon and Rahab, Ruth and Boaz, David and Bathsheba, God used each of those stories to bring about the family that his son would be born into. God forgave and redeemed each of those stories. Some of them reap the consequences still, but God redeemed each of those stories to create the family line that his son would be born into. Judah and Tamar teach us that there are no accidents when it comes to a baby being born. What a horrible word we put on people. Their parents weren't married or whatever. Oh, it was an accident. What a horrible word we place on somebody. Sarah and I have some of this in our extended family. Just babies that were born by couples who weren't married. It was an accident. Listen, God does not make accidents. There is illegitimate sex, but I fully believe there's no such thing as illegitimate life. Life doesn't just happen because of sex. Ask the couple who's been trying to get pregnant for five years. Life happens when God creates something. I don't fully understand the, how it all works in terms of his holiness and whatever, but when a baby is conceived, it's because God has begun to knit that baby together, and God has a purpose and a plan for that child. We make mistakes. We might make accidents, but God's life is not an accident. We got to stop using that word. There are people in that room who've had that hanging over them their whole lives. God does not make 
accidents. The baby that was born out of Judah and Tamar would lead directly in a bloodline to Jesus Christ. If you pulled that one baby out, it wouldn't look the way it did. It would have been a totally different thing. God took it, forgave it, redeemed it to bring his son into this world. Salmon and Rahab teach us that your sexual past, it, it can be checkered. It could be long. Rahab was a prostitute. Who knows how many other people she had glued herself to, how many others that she had become one with. As she left that behind, she was brought into the family of God. She was married. She had children. Uh, she lived a good life. Her sexual history was forgiven, and it was redeemed. Out of that relationship, a baby came who had become part of the bloodline of the family that Jesus would be born into. Ruth and Boaz, it's a great story, uh, teaches us it's not sexual immorality in quite the same way, but if you read the whole story, it's a short one, just a few chapters from start to finish. God moved heaven and earth to bring Ruth into a healthy, happy marriage. Uh, even though it shouldn't have looked that way, maybe if we were following the letter of the law, uh, God worked out this amazing plan of redemption in Ruth's life so that she could have a husband and she could have a baby and she could have a happy life. Whatever your past, whatever your history, God can redeem this and bring this all around. David and Bathsheba, as I mentioned, reaping the consequences of their actions. The, the consequences were big. And yet God took it. He was able to forgive it. He was able to redeem it. They were able to have a happy marriage, even after their sin. They were able to have a son, or their son would be Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. He'd be part of the bloodline that Jesus was born into. Even with the weight of their consequences, adultery and murder, and everything that that brought down upon their heads and upon their house, God took it and forgave it and redeemed it in order to bring about another king, another step in the bloodline that would bring Jesus. They teach us that whatever consequences we might face, healing and wholeness is available to us. It's what Jesus does. I love this bloodline because it's full of people just like you and just like me. These are not all holy, great, righteous people. These are liars, adulterers, idol worshipers, murderers, dishonest, God-dishonoring, scripture-breaking people all the way down the line. We emphasize the sexual sin today, but it's nothing but sin pretty much, the whole way down. And yet, every step of the way is something that God used, God redeemed, God fixed, in order to bring Jesus into this family, into this bloodline, to fulfill the promise that was made to Abraham, and the promise that was made to Isaac, and the promise that was made to Jacob, and the promise that was made to Judah, and the promise that was made to David, that the Messiah, the King, will be born into this line. Even in our sin, let's not misunderstand that God endorses the sin, but even in our sin, even in their sin, God was able to take it and use it for his glory, for his purpose, and bring about healing and wholeness in that place. It's as if Jesus was saying, he shows up on earth, he hasn't done a single miracle yet. He hasn't taught a single thing yet. He hasn't demonstrated his divinity at all yet. But just even by the way he was born in this world and the family that he was born into, it's as if Jesus was saying, I fix things. I make things right. I forgive and I restore and I heal. And I will use all of these things if you will 
repent, if you will submit, if you will let me, I will use these things. I will fix these things. I will help you overcome these things because his name is Jesus, which means the Lord saves. His name is Savior. His name is Redeemer. This is what he does. We're going to pray in just a moment. If you have questions about anything from today's sermon, we would love to keep the conversation going. There's an email address there. It's in your bulletin as well and online. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. I know sometimes messages like this raise more questions than they answer, uh, and that's an okay thing. But stand to your feet with me, please, as we get ready to close in prayer. Close your eyes with me, please, and bow your heads. Even if you don't really feel like doing that, would you do that with me, please? We just want to pray into a few just very specific things today. We just want it to be a private moment. Father, I bless everyone in this room and thank you that you have called us to follow after you. You've called us to follow after your word. You've called us to be like you. And we all have fallen short in many ways. And today we're just talking about one particular way, but... For those of us in this room, Lord, who have fallen short in this area, we have slept with someone we are not married to, either before marriage or even during our marriage. Uh, There's lots of different ways that this can look, but there is an ideal that you have set, and not all of us have lived up to it, and I know the weight of that guilt, and I know uh, that many of us carry that. But we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, uh, in hearing these stories today, in hearing from your word, Uh, what you have done and how you have redeemed and how you have saved. Father, in Jesus' name, let that guilt lift off as we repent and as we turn to you. Father, for every one of us here who has glued themselves to someone that we are not married to, Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray that that bond will be broken, the ungodly one will be broken, that the cross will come in between us and that person and that oneness that you never intended that was our mistake, that that oneness will be dissolved in Jesus' name. And that if we are single, we would have the strength and the perseverance to wait and to honor you and to do this your way. If we're married, that the oneness would only be happening with our spouse and that that bond would get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger in Jesus' name. And Lord, in this area where we know there, there is hurt and there is guilt, there is tearing, there are consequences, Right now, Lord, in this moment, not abstractly, but in real life, right now, Holy Spirit, just move into those places in our heart. Move into those places in our mind where there have been lies, let the lies be broken in Jesus' name. Where there has been hurt, let your healing come and mend those wounds, Lord. Where there has been tearing because we joined ourselves to someone that we shouldn't, as that that tie is broken, Lord, let your healing spirit come and fix what is broken because your name is Redeemer. That is who you are and that is what you do. And so as we turn to you and say, yes, Lord, we will do this your way. Yes, Lord, we will honor you and walk in the way that you've called us to. We choose righteousness. We choose purity. We choose holiness, Lord. As we walk in your way, heal, restore, redeem, fix. Make us like you. Let us leave the past behind as we move into a glorious future with you, Lord God. Thank you for your goodness all the time. Thank you that you rise to show us compassion, that your loving kindness is new every morning. 
and your mercy is new every day. Thank you that I know personally and I have seen time and time again that this can be overcome, that health and healing and wholeness is available, not because we are hardworking, but because you are just so good to us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. I pray for those in the room who have never struggled in this area, Lord, that we would be filled with grace, that there would be grace for those who do struggle, that we would stop looking down on others who struggle with things that we don't, that we would take the log out of our own eye, that we would focus on ourselves and not be self-righteous or judgmental, but we would understand that we are all called to holiness, we are all falling short somewhere, and we're here to encourage one another and help each other along the way. Bless your people, Lord, as we worship you with everything we have, as we thank you for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for sticking it out with me. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.